You're listening to FMGRadio.com. Welcome to Generation Reinvention, how baby boomers are changing the future, with your host, Brent Green. This is Brent Green. Welcome back. Pleased to have you here again today. You know, one thing every one of us has in common, boomers and everybody else, is that we're aging, and so are our brains. The language we use to describe the inevitabilities of brain aging and cognitive aging tap into some of our deepest fears, you know, things like senior moments, dementia, loss of self, and even organic brain dysfunction. In particular, we think of two words probably with the greatest anxiety, Alzheimer's disease. In his book, The Myth of Alzheimer's, which you aren't being told about today's most dreaded diagnosis, Dr. Peter Whitehouse and his protege, Daniel George, address the very foundation of our cultural and social relationships to the most dreaded disease of modern times. First described in 1907 by Alloy Alzheimer, this disease has grown, and here I quote from the offers, into a $100 billion a year marketing and research juggernaut with more than 25 million afflicted worldwide. Those are huge numbers. The victims of this mysterious disease face ostracism, institutionalization, isolation, loneliness, and certainly dependency. The perpetrators of the myth seem to be comfortable with our fears because fear inspires research budgets, drug sales, elaborate diagnostic testing protocols, and nicely decorated prison facilities at nursing homes. Above all, the myth perpetrators create another class of human being, the unfortunate mortals who are less than fully human because of diminishing memories, communication skills, and competencies with the activities of daily living. In effect, they are dying brains without hearts. To many of us, such a medical diagnosis is a decree worse than death itself. It is what we dread for our parents. It is what we fear for ourselves. The authors believe the time has come to change our language and our innate conceptions of cognitive aging. So, with more than 30 years of experience as a scientist and geriatric neurologist, Dr. Peter Whitehouse, who himself is a boomer, has been at the forefront of the evolution of the disease we call Alzheimer's. He has earned over a million dollars consulting with pharmaceutical companies about the development of cholinesterase inhibitors, the contemporary silver bullets and drug therapies for early treatment of disease symptoms. He has accepted grants to support research and education in service to the same industry valued at millions of more dollars. He has traveled the world to discuss the marvels of the coming cognitive pharmacopoeia, again, a benefactor of drug industry dollars. And finally, he has set in motion a pugnacious call for sensibility in a more informed public. As he pretends, and I quote, the book is a book for baby boomers and healthcare professionals and anyone else who wants to join me in bringing a new understanding of Alzheimer's disease and taking control of their own brain aging. So it's with a great deal of pride and pleasure that I welcome to the show Dr. Peter Whitehouse. Good morning. Good morning, Brent. It's delightful to be with you. Thank you. I'm so appreciative that you are. 
I would like to be in our discussion today for our listeners to talk about the general subject area of cognitive aging. What is normal cognitive aging and how do we know what we're experiencing is in fact normal? Well, you're getting to the crux of the matter in the first question, um, <laughs> and I'll explain that in a minute. I think uh, the kind of standard answer to uh, the first question, the part of the question, which is what's normal aging, is uh, that we do experience both the opportunities for cognitive growth as well as um, cognitive um, challenges, shall we say. So speed of processing, reaction times, anybody who's played a video game knows you just can't keep up with the youngsters. Um, the uh, multitasking, a component of that as well, doing more than one thing at a time becomes more challenging. And there are uh, senior moments, uh, memory lapses um, that um, uh, we all face throughout age. Nobody's got a perfect memory. Uh, we do have more of those um, ch challenges as we get older. Uh, however, it's also an opportunity to integrate experiences, reflect, and uh, create a kind of uh, opportunity for, for greater wisdom, for generativity, for for the things that um, we all know older people can do in our lives, even though they may not be able to mm -hmm. be quite as quick at video games. The other thing is that, that there's no clear boundary between those normal changing and, and things that we call Alzheimer's. So it's not like there's one test or one way of differentiating those. There's a spectrum uh, that we all exist to uh, one degree or another on. Well, you've written that the biological hallmarks of AD, and throughout the show we'll often referred to Alzheimer's disease as AD for shorthand, uh, that the biological hallmarks are also the hallmarks of normal brain aging. So what are the real signs of abnormal brain aging that you as a clinician identify? Well, I'm going to um, call you to see if we can for this hour together. Refer to them as ADs, Alzheimer's diseases, because the okay. point is Right. There, there are, um, there's a spectrum of uh, con a continuum with aging. There's also a diversity, as you might expect, within that, uh, that condition that we call um, Alzheimer's um, disease. Now, mm -hmm. the standard model is it's one thing, and with that one thing, there's the promise for single ma magic bullets. But if you imagine that it is more heterogeneous, then you, then you come into this um, uh, conundrum of, of multiple biologies that overlap with aging. Mm -hmm. We'll tell the story of, you know, Alzheimer's probably um, his original contribution that you referred to in uh, in 1907, uh, where he described in the brain of an individual uh, who had a condition of progressive cognitive loss at the age of uh, 51, uh, the so-called neuritic or senile plaques and neurofibrillary tangles that are found in the brains of people with what he'd described as Alzheimer's disease, but we find a variety of changes there, and also um, we find those structures in people who age and may not necessarily have significant memory problems, so there becomes a confusion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, what do you look for as a clinician that start? I mean, obviously, we don't do a lot of surgery on brains to see if we can see tangles. Um, what what do you start looking for as a clinician to say to yourself, hmm, this might be a, a sign of ADs, and I, I do try to keep my memory together, and I will refer to AD as ADs in the program. What what do you what are you thinking about when you're starting to see some well, problems? Well, so I'm uh, thinking about um, 
memory uh, because that's what people tend to come and complain about, and it's particularly short-term memory. So the most sensitive task for that is to ask people to remember three words and uh, have a conversation continue and then come back and ask them for those three words again. Um, and uh, so recent memory is what you're looking to test. Um, mm-hmm. You also look at um, uh, other uh, thinking abilities because um, these conditions are not just amnesias, they're not just memory. So you look at drawing, you look at attention, uh, you, you uh, listen to the conversation and uh, see if there's evidence of what we call word-finding difficulties um, where people we all have them. Uh, you and I will probably have several ourselves as we're talking here, where we just can't remember that exact word. Um, right, I, I have promise that. I won't. Uh, well, I, I promise I won't make a diagnosis uh, in this hour, because again, it's a matter of degree. We all have this, um, but I, those are the things I'm looking for. Now, I'm not looking for any biomarker. I'm not looking for any medical test. I, I am going to do uh, a, a CT scan, a CAT scan, not even a. MRI scan or a PET scan or any of those fancier technologies, because I want to make sure that we're not missing a stroke or, or a slow-growing brain tumor or a blood clot. So there are there, there's what we call medically a differential diagnosis when you see people with those symptoms. That you want to make sure that you've done everything you can to make sure there's not some more um, specifically reversible condition that you'd want to offer a specific treatment for. I noticed on your website that you have some interesting videos and I encourage our listeners as they choose to explore more about this to go to the book's website, themythofalzheimers.com. You mention that you feel uh, Alzheimer's and ADs uh, have been diseases of exclusion. What did you mean by that? What I meant by that is um, that you go through uh, your uh, history taking, your neurological examination, your CAT scan or CT scan, as I mentioned, and a few blood tests uh, looking for uh, chemical imbalances. For example, is the thyroid gland underactive? The thyroid gland is kind of a master uh, metabolism regulator, and if it's underactive, you're sluggish in general and sluggish mentally. So you go through all those tests, and then at the end of the day, if you can't find anything definite, you say, well, this this is the way it used to be done. You say, well, you probably have Alzheimer's disease. So Alzheimer's disease is a, a catch bag, um, miscellaneous category. And, you know, even that tells you something. It's like, well, we don't have a specific test for for for, every, for everything. And so at the end of the day, if we can't find anything that's specific, you get the label Alzheimer's. That doesn't sound like a very precise single disease, does it? It sounds like a bunch no. of things at the end of the day. Well, one of the areas that has been bandied about in the popular health media is this whole idea of genetic testing and in particular the APOE-4 gene. I don't know how you actually say it, but it's APOE-4. Is that something that we should start getting tested for in our annual physical examinations? Is that a a marker that the, the people listening to this program should be thinking about? Well, it is APOE-4. Uh, just don't say the dash. Um, and it is... Um, <laughs> You could you either you, I can test every anybody any one of your listeners and we'll find out whether they're um, whether they've got a two a three or a four to tell you what happened to one would be a longer conversation. You get one from each um, family 
member, your mother and father. So the the worst situation to be is a four and a four, a pair that you got one from each parent. That gives you an increased risk for a variety of different brain uh, conditions. It's not specific to Alzheimer's. It's also um, probably not good for your heart. However, there's some studies that suggest that people are a 4-4 may get less eye disease, less macular degeneration. So APOE4 is not a specific gene uh, that um, relates just to Alzheimer's. And it also isn't a causative gene. That's to say, if you have it, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get Alzheimer's. So you can get Alzheimer's without it, and you can get uh, uh, not get Alzheimer's disease or escape it uh, with it. So as you can tell, it's a messy situation. It's, it affects risks for various diseases and sometimes may be protective. We just don't know. The research is still ongoing. So to answer your question, no, I think direct-to-consumer marketing genetic testing is irresponsible it, because even the scientists who are studying it, and I've had 10 years of funding doing this, can't give a clear interpretation to people as to what it means if you're an APOE uh, four, three, four, two, four, four, whatever. So I know it's wonderful. We think everything is related to genes, uh, but this is um, commercialization of, of, of testing, in my mind, gone too far. So I do not recommend people get uh, this testing. Okay, well, I think that's very specific and a non-ambiguous answer to the question. And I was wondering, because I've read some popular recent uh, books about you know maintaining one's health for as long as possible, in fact, I have one written by a physician based in Denver, where I am. So I appreciate your answering that question. Well, let me ask you in, as a final question in this segment, when should I get nervous? When should I say to myself, I need to be talking to my neurologist? Um, what would be the largest signal that you could direct people to as far as their thinking? By the way, if I could, Brent, let me just make sure that um, I was clear about that. I'm specifically not saying – I'm saying, uh, you know, don't get the genetic testing clearly from a 23-year uh, knee or other testing company. I'm uh -huh. not saying that you shouldn't attend to, to brain health issues and look at risks and family history and stuff like that. Uh -huh. so, uh -huh. so I didn't want to make my answer too generalizable there. But when should you get nervous? <clears throat> it's an interesting word, nervous. Um, <laughs> The, you, the, and, you know, for the same degree of memory problem, and we all have it, as I said before, to one degree or another, you'll get people that are really nervous and some that just take it in stride. Uh, the number of patients that come into my clinic and say, well, this is just age-related um, changes. I'm not worried about that. And sometimes they're right. Uh, the real question you're asking is, I think, when, um, if I forget something, uh, uh, is that a sign of um, uh, something more than uh, um, just kind of average aging? When, when is it a, a case of uh, severe brain aging? I think the answer to that is that it's not clear just in a one-shot situation. You kind of need to track it. Um, you know, neurotic people, uh, college professors, uh, those overlap <laughs> a bit, you know, they're yeah. really sensitive to their memory and they get nervous sooner. You know, people that may be a little bit more, more well-balanced or have a, a career where their minds are not, um, it's not that important, uh, as important that they remember details, they get less nervous. I will tell you, though, that it's the nervous part, how you um, 
look at your brain aging, how you look at your aging in general, that's really important because for the same amount of memory problem, a nervous person can have more memory problems because their nervousness you know, makes their memory problems even worse and it certainly affects their quality of life. But I think if you have any concern, and particularly if family members have a concern, then you, know, you should at least have a talk with your doctor about your concerns. Okay, well, I appreciate that and, and good recommendation. When we come back, we're going to be talking about specifically Dr. Whitehouse's newest book and also the myth of Alzheimer's, so stick around. You're listening to the FMG Radio Network, where our motto is have fun, make money, do good. We provide platforms to individuals who have a cause, message, or information that they would like to share with the world. If you'd like to join the FMG family and have your own radio show, please call us at 1-800-470-4982. That's 1-800-470-4982. We look forward to hearing from you. For well over 25 years, Dr. Whitehouse, who is our guest today, has served as a leader of the Alzheimer's field and has helped international Alzheimer's organizations and pharmaceutical companies shape the rules, guidelines, diagnostic categories, and accepted clinical approaches to Alzheimer's disease. Uh, The pharmaceutical industry reached out to him to hear his thoughts and opinions about treating persons with memory challenges. Then Big Pharma decided to convince him that their drugs under development were, in fact, the magic bullets, that drugs are the solution. And then comes the book myth of Alzheimer's. So let's begin the discussion by sharing a brief uh, understanding of what we mean by a myth when we're talking about Alzheimer's. What, what, do, what did you mean when you entitled your book? So the myth of Alzheimer's is um, uh, basically two points, uh, and that is that Alzheimer's disease, although it's referred to by a single uh, singular noun, disease, is not one biological process. There's a lot of variety, heterogeneity, subtypes uh, at every level, clinically, mm-hmm. um, pathologically, and otherwise. And the other is, if you if you actually Google the myth of Alzheimer's, probably what will come up still, although it's changing, is that Alzheimer's is not normal aging. Well, it is related to aging, and at the age of 85, it becomes more normal to have significant memory problems than it does uh, not to have uh, memory problems. So statistically, it does become normal, and unfortunately, the rate of significant memory problems continues to go up, 85, 95, 100, and beyond. But what I am not saying, though, Brent, uh, and this is an important message to, to make, because people that attack the title of the book, uh, many who haven't read it, think mm-hmm. we're saying that somehow we could, magic, we could wave a magic wand and that Alzheimer's is going to go away. No, it's not. There are significant challenges that we face as individuals, families, and societies to care for older people who have these kind of cognitive problems. So we're not trying to minimize the stress and strain. We're just trying to say with something so important, it's really, it's really uh, important that we understand the words that we're using and what they mean. Well, one of the areas that I think you are largely concerned about, as I've read your work and studied online, is really our conception of this disease as a single entity and the social and, if you will, the political consequences of, of a limiting diagnosis focused on one disease, one problem, all the negative connotations associated with that. Is that a kind of a correct summary of part of this? 
That's right. Um, and the thing is that it's by by making it a single disease. And do we've got to remember that you know doctors invent diseases, particularly with the drug companies behind them. There are lots of uh, diseases we didn't have uh, uh, a few years ago, and there are diseases they had that we don't have. The the, the disease labels changes, our understanding changes. And I think it's what's fair to say is that we now understand that Alzheimer's disease is not a single entity. That The implications of that, as we've discussed a little bit before, are that we can't be expecting that one bullet, one, we keep using that term, magic bullet, silver bullet, one molecule, one vaccine is going to um, uh, fix this problem. I mean, just to imagine, imagine, uh, imagine if somebody said they've got a cure for Alzheimer's disease and they cured this thing, what would that mean? Would that mean that we would not lose any memories as we got older, that uh, the changes would be milder? I mean, it's, it's not even clear what a cure would look like. Um, because you certainly can't imagine that the rest of your body continues to get old and somehow your mind is, is spared any age-related changes. Nobody can say what is the difference uh, between brain aging and Alzheimer's. So nobody can really say if we could so-called Alzheimer's what that would look like. One of the things that I think you addressed is that the label Alzheimer's is at best simplistic and certainly reductionistic. Could you kind of elaborate on the simplifying of the disease as well as the reducing of the disease a little bit more? I think it's important uh, to understand this point because I think it's more than just Alzheimer's. As you pointed out in your introduction, this is a disease that that frightens people particularly. But um, it's true of a lot of medicine. We're enamored as doctors with molecules and genes, and as a result of that, we ignore other things that we be, should be thinking about, environmental threats to aging and social um, factors as well. Um, the, the molecule that has attracted the most attention is amyloid. Amyloid actually literally means starch-like. It's actually a protein. It's actually a protein or a series of proteins found inside those senile plaques that Dr. Alzheimer described, although he, didn't, he wasn't aware of it. Uh, what it was. And so many people think that getting rid of this amyloid is the salvation, that if we can just get rid of this uh, protein, um, we will somehow fix the problem. Uh, There are actually medicines that have apparently gotten rid of a little amyloid. Uh, In in the brains of mice, for sure, we've done it, and some evidence in people, and it hasn't helped their thinking. Uh, so now people don't think it's the amyloid in the plaques. Maybe it's a different amyloid. or But no one has really conclusively been able to demonstrate, A, that amyloid is, is prob- a problem um, uh, conclusively. Some people think it's a sink uh, that, that actually is part of the healing process. And certainly we haven't been able to demonstrate that getting rid of it helps people. So that's uh-huh. that amyloid fixation, the amyloid hypothesis, particularly when you tie it to the word amyloid vaccine, when you say we've got a potential vaccine, that sounds powerful. It's also a lot of hype. Well, of course, the lay public is used to va- vaccines as being magic bullets. Polio comes to mind. And so obviously that's a very powerful message to put out there. Are the pharmaceutical companies in effect being slightly irresponsible by trying to convey that uh, – either a drug that currently exists, and there's one that I think you were involved in helping develop, the colonosterase inhibitor. Um, I forget the name of the actual brand, but are, are they being somewhat irresponsible in trying to convey this, this uh, 
this thinking process that there is a polio vaccine forthcoming for Alzheimer's. Yes, I believe they are. And also the scientists um, and clinicians, those who want fame and fortune out of it, polio is caused by a virus. Alzheimer's is caused by many factors, hence Alzheimer's diseases. Um, the uh, cholinesterase inhibitors, and I'm not going to use the brand name, although everybody would recognize it from the direct, <laughs> direct uh, television marketing, is the generic name is Denepacil. It got approved by the FDA because it helped uh, uh, some people a very little bit. But the real question is, how many people does it help? How much does it help the average person? And how much does it cost? And there we see uh, failures. Uh, the, the pharmaceutical industry has not made the case. And they have been fined billions of dollars, billions of dollars, which to them is a, can be a relatively small amount, for mm -hmm. misleading uh, physicians, for misleading the public, uh, for uh, the, 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 that, uh, now I will mention the Aricept ads, Aricept is the brand name, and they got fined by the um, uh, FDA for direct, for television ads, for exaggerating the power of these drugs. So absolutely, I believe uh, the pharmaceutical industry is being irresponsible. And by the way, I believe they know that in the C-suites, the chief executives of pharmaceutical companies are really worried. They have not developed truly effective medicines. They're doing a bunch of Me Too stuff. They're spending far too much time on marketing and enough time on, on science. And so I think uh, there's a huge threat to our country around the viability of our pharmaceutical industry. Uh, particularly when uh, governments start ratcheting down on the price of drugs. Uh, so we ought to be uh, sympathetic. I know it's hard to do that for these uh, overly paid executives, but they are going to have their handful. In fact, the Pfizer executive, Pfizer makes Aricept, uh, retired early because of too much stress in the job. I'm sure he had a pretty big golden parachute, so I won't feel too sorry for him. But yeah, we've got a big problem with our pharmaceutical industry in this country, in my opinion. Well, that is certainly something I've been aware of. I even quoted another thoughtful writer in my first book, uh, basically a process called disease mongering. In other words, creating diseases where they don't really exist. They're normal part of the aging process and then spinning off all kinds of drugs and making the general public very concerned that they need to be self-medicating or getting medication through their physician to take care of a problem that may not really exist. So it certainly goes well beyond the ADs. There's a quote from your book that I'd like to share here because I think it is a very ele uh, elegant and thoughtful quote. And this is, uh, you wrote, uh, I know that the flame of a cognitively affected person's life is not extinguished by the dysfunction of the brain or the acquisition of a disease label, but wanes as the individual slowly disconnects from the past, becomes concerned with the future, and lives only in a constant present. The flame of personhood is always there. What were you thinking? What, what, what was on your mind when you, you wrote that? There are a lot of books that um, one called The Loss of Self, um, which really gets us, and this is why Alzheimer's is, um, is such an, uh, an interesting topic to consider, because at the heart of Alzheimer's, we've got what's the brain, what's aging, what's a human uh, being. My conception of self is a very social one. That's to say none of us uh, can exist without other people. And we are, um, uh, our flames are kept uh, alight not only by our own uh, neurons firing, but also by 
uh, what other people in community uh, do to help us and support us. Uh, we Americans are so focused on autonomy and independence, we really need to recognize that we're very highly in interdependent, even those of us that really um, haven't begun the process of brain aging to require much help. Although my wife just walked into the room here, and I can say that um, she's my caregiver already and has been for 25 years. And we'll talk about her because <laughs> I'm sitting in her school office. But there's a serious point here, and that is um, I think as long as other people around you remember your memories for you, help you plan your future, treat you as a valued member of that community, then uh, yourself is not going to be um, extinguished. The Volunteer of the Year Award was given in our intergenerational school, sorry for introducing that early, to a woman who was, while waiting to go on to get her award, turned to her family member and said, why am I getting this award? And the family member said, well, you come here every week and you read to the kids and they love it. And uh, the person turned to her and said, I do that? In other words, her short-term memory problem was such that she could not remember that she was a volunteer. But... Everybody who clapped and applauded and everybody who chose her as the volunteer of the year award knew that she was a very valued member of that community, despite her memory problems. I think she's the metaphor for two things. One, our fear. And in that sense, I mean that we would reach a point of, um, let's call it cognitive decline, where people started treating us as something less than human. On the other side, she represents the enlightened thinking that we as a society absolutely need to try to embrace that the people that have some of these problems, these ADs are still people. And I think that's part of what you've been addressing in, in part of your message in your book. Correct? Right. And it's exactly. And it's not just uh, out of um, sympathy and empathy for, right. for the fear that we would be there. It's because Folks that have mild memory problems and elders um, uh, really um, uh, can and, and should play a valued role in, in community uh, if we give them that opportunity. You know, as I sometimes say it, there's, the world is not divided into two groups of people, those that have Alzheimer's and those that are afraid of getting it. It's, 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 a, it's an issue of solidarity that we're all at risk for it. Um, uh, so um, yes, uh, mm -hmm. that should bind us together, not separate us. On that thought, we'll take another break. We'll be back in just a few seconds. And that's the next section. We're going to be actually talking about what we might be able to do to improve healthy brain aging. We'll be right back. Be sure to join us at fmguniversity.com. That's where we can turn your passion into business within 30 days, put some fun back into your life, show you how to make money, and do good for yourself and others. That's why we are called FMG, Fun Money Good. Get started today. Go to fmguniversity.com. If you'd like to connect with this program, I'd like to remind you that you can send me an email, brent at bgassociates.com. If you have questions for Dr. Whitehouse, I will see that he gets them. If you have questions and comments about this program, I'll be happy to respond. Well, Dr. Whitehouse today is a professor of neurology at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. And he's also been a professor of cognitive science, psychiatry, neuroscience, psychology, nursing, organizational behavior, bioethics, and history. He received his graduate 
undergraduate degree from Brown University and then his MD PhD in psychology from Johns Hopkins University, followed by a fellowship in neuroscience and psychiatry and a, a faculty appointment at Hopkins. So certainly we have an individual that is a worldwide leader in the area of ADs, but he's also somebody that I'd like to talk to a few minutes about healthy brain aging. So um, can you talk a little bit about what your framework is for brain aging? You talk about this in your book, uh, a way of thinking about brain aging. Um, I think uh, this sounds like a uh, funny way to answer your question, but I think we have to be cautious about overdoing the brain part. Um, yes, we are concerned about um, aging in general. And honestly, uh, if you keep your body healthy and do all the exercise, diet, and, and other things, you're going to end up keeping your brain healthy too. And besides, it's not really that important that we keep the brain healthy uh, as much as it is we keep our, our the functions of the brain healthy. And I say that because we all face um, uh, certain brain changes as we age, uh, but some people maintain a remarkable degree of um, ability to contribute to society while others don't. But to be, um, uh, I wrote an article that um, I may share with you, Brent, called Taking Brain Health to the Deeper and Broader Levels. Lots of people will tell you to keep your brain healthy, you do the diet, exercise, and other stuff, and that is important. I'm not minimizing it, particularly the exercise part. But what we really need to do to keep our brains healthy is to have a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning. Why do you want to have a healthy brain? What is it you want to accomplish? What is it you want to learn? And the broader is we just launched an initiative called Healthy Brains, Healthy Communities. How is it that we can help each other's brains uh, stay healthy. What, 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 what is the collective work that we have to do, not just the individual work? Because going back to the conversation about so-called Alzheimer's disease, an Alzheimer's patient, somebody with one of the forms of Alzheimer's disease, will do more or less well depending on how the community supports or doesn't. Well, that's true for all of us. So we really ought, need to think about our community brain health, if you will, or, or our communities of brains and how to keep them healthy. You know, that is something that you describe in the book as obviously a key, and that's why you bring it up first. But you also write and speak about fitness, and you've touched on that. Maybe you can elaborate a little bit about what do you mean by fitness, and then also some indication of nutrition, some uh, indication of maybe there's something in this these uh, computer programs that are becoming popular for, in effect, uh, challenging the brain. Can you talk a little bit about first fitness, second nutrition, and third uh, cognitive brain training, if you will, and, and your thoughts about those areas? Sure. Well, I think when you use the word fitness, we can be talking about cognitive fitness or brain fitness or just general physical fitness. That goes back to what I was saying before. I mean, frankly, in the basic science of this, if you have an animal that you've created some model of any human disease that affects the brain, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Huntington's, the best thing you can do for that animal is an exercise wheel. So uh, for human beings, too. Uh, <laughs> it's not only, it absolutely, yeah, put an exercise wheel in your house. Uh, uh, I'm sure you've got some state-of-the-art equipment anyway, but whatever it is, uh, and whatever you enjoy, and whatever you're going to do, and that's important, all that you know, there's no, no point in having a great program and not doing anything with it. So physical fitness is key. 
diet's really hard to know exactly what to say. I don't recommend uh, to my patients that eat a healthy diet um, uh, supplements. Um, if the, the, the key things are um, enough of vitamins, uh, but I don't recommend the multivitamin again for a regular diet. Uh, omega-3 fatty acids are worthwhile considering. Uh, you know, vitamin D is attributed to get some attractiveness recently, although its association with dementia is not clear. So I usually end up saying a Mediterranean diet, which is more fruits and vegetables and fiber and less, uh, you know, red meats and trans fats and so on. I guess just to the last part, which is, is do I have a recommendation for the best computer program to, to, to work on to mm -hmm. keep your brain fed? And I've been, mm -hmm. I work with a number of them, including um, Dr. Kawashima, who is the Japanese scientist who's on the in, 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 original Nintendo brain fitness program. I don't think anyone um, has proven it's, itself completely. Lots of people will claim they have science. Uh, to me, this is not the way to, to do cognitive fitness. Uh, I'd like to recommend people do something that's social, something that's meaningful, uh, not something that's repetitive and boring to many people. And um, so I, my recommendation for brain fitness is volunteering in community, and anybody that wants to volunteer in a school, to me, and keep their own mind active by learning. Now they've got, they're on the right path for what I'm concerned, particularly if they walk to the school. Well, if you look at the freezer in my home, you'll see that it's full of blueberries. Did I, did I make the wrong investment? Uh, well, I don't know. Uh, if, if, if you had it orange juice and uh, we'd look in the weather in Florida, I'd say you're in good shape. Blueberries get a lot of attention. So does acacia uh, and other things because they're high in antioxidants. And there was a theory of brain aging that focused a lot on on, um, on antioxidants. I think that's been over overdone. Although I have to say, we have blueberries growing in our school garden, so we're we're into blueberries too. And my wife keeps us well stocked. I uh, I think you know it's the fruits and vegetables, um, what, whatever uh, kind you enjoy. And I wouldn't be worried about any particular exotic or non-exotic uh, uh, part of our fruits and vegetables family. Uh, you think I don't need to be gulping down teaspoons full of uh, Middle Eastern spices then? Well, uh, the one that got a lot of attention was um, curcumin. Um, uh, I, I think the answer is um, uh, enjoy a healthy <laughs> diet with the focus on the word enjoy and the focus on the word healthy and don't get too obsessive about any one particular approach. Okay, I'm, I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore then. It was kind of nasty to, you know, take teaspoons full of uh, curcumin. But uh, anyway, one of the things that you have alluded to uh, periodically throughout our conversation today is the idea of social, the socialization process that we do everything we can to maintain that as we age. And certainly there's plenty of evidence that as people get older, they, they tend to limit their social networks. Friends die. Uh, people move away. Uh, they may be become more of hermits themselves. Um, and this is a perfect segue into talking about the intergenerational school where you're actually at right now, which you founded with your wife, Catherine. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about that, the school and uh, its role in healthy brain aging, if you will. Um the uh, Intergenerational School is a public charter school in Cleveland, Ohio. The website uh, is um, tisonline 
org, but just Google the Intergenerational School Cleveland if you're interested in hearing more. My wife and I met as graduate students in psychology at Hopkins, and she um, worked on the learning challenges of kids. And then when we moved to Cleveland about 25 years ago, she uh, continued that focus. But she kept saying, you know, it's not just the kids, it's a school. I should start my own school. And so after our kids grown up, got, uh, and uh, particularly after they started um, hearing that and telling my wife that she should, she and I talked about what that school might look like. And then it turned out that my attitudes about what older people needed to keep their brains active and to learn uh, and my, my sense of what kind of learning experiences you needed to cr- create was, was really comparable. So that's when we decided to create a school for lifelong learning um, in which uh, the power of relationships and story sharing uh, really is taken full advantage of. The school has been very successful. We're one of the best, if not the best, charter school in Ohio. We've, we're replicating our school, uh, touting my wife's some um, successes here. We also have a couple of papers in press showing that volunteering in the school helps people who are older uh, with memory problems. So we call our intergenerational school a twofer. It's a place for brain, brain health, regardless of your age, it helps kids get on the right path because the older adults can help them with that, and it helps older adults um, feel a sense of purpose uh, that they're continuing to engage in the life of the community. And I mentioned earlier the story of our volunteer of the year who had um, a significant memory uh-huh. problem but still was able to get community recognition for her contributions. What are your thoughts, uh, what are your observations, what are your clinical conclusions, if you will, about the role this school plays for people who have some form of the ADs? What's going on there? What do you observe? Take us inside. Well, I, the, the biggest insight, I think, um, has to do with ikigai. Now, that's a funny word, and I'm obviously pulling your leg a little bit. It's what the <laughs> Japanese talk about. It's spelled I-K-I-G-A-I. And uh, I think I'm not pronouncing it perfectly, as uh, anybody who knows Japanese might know. Anyway, this is something that's on the tip of the uh, tongue of, 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 of older adults in Japan. It means a sense of joy in life, uh, love of life, purpose in life, meaningful. It's all that gamish uh, that we think is important. And, and that's when we talk to the elders who participate, and we did that systematically and reported those results, it's all about relationship and health and quality of life uh, and, and legacy. So to me, it's nothing to do you know, with particular uh, brain cell or, um, you know, it, it mm-hmm. has to do with um, just uh, making sure that people with uh, memory problems have a reason for getting up in the morning. Well, and it has proven that. In other words, you feel that there's a lot of active and vital engagement between those who are experiencing some form of ADs and the little children that they're, in effect, uh, interacting with. You, you see a dynamic well, yeah, going I, on here. They, 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 it's a one-on-one kind of situation. We have a lot of couches around the place. And so you come in and you'll see um, not just people with um, memory problems, but uh, elders and college students and others. And just think about it. I mean, they can the person with a memory problem may not be able to pick up the adult book they once could, but they can sure pick up a kid's book. And they can sure, from long-term memory, tell stories to the child about their life. And they can make history come alive. Uh, we're interviewing uh older people who um, saved our Shaker Nature Center. Shaker Heights is the community 
uh, right near us, and uh, they bid when they when uh, some corrupt uh, politician wanted to put a free a, free, a freeway through mm-hmm. the nature center and ruin the watershed. So we're sharing those stories so our kids can realize that they are now taking on the responsibility of preserving our watershed and our nature center for generations to come. I think that's a fantastic story. Is there any possibility that the school model that you've developed will be exporting to other communities around the country? Do you think there might be some initiative behind that? It just seems like such a marvelous concept. It needs to be where I'm in Denver and California and so forth. Uh, well, thank you for that thought, and again, thank you for your fine work um, promoting um, some of these ideas in your own uh, scholarship and own book, so uh, congratulations on that, and, and thanks. Thank you. It turns out that my wife was actually in uh, Colorado from the Charter um, Growth Association, I apologize to the people there, uh-huh. the uh-huh. National Foundation just gave us money to do exactly that. Um, so we're now, we, actually on Monday of this week, we had the first board meeting of the Near West Intergenerational School here in Cleveland. And as I think I mentioned earlier, we actually have a sister program in Tokyo. We've also spoken, Kathy and I, to the uh, school boards in Finland um, and other places. So it is a twofer. It, you know, a lot of people are concerned about public education and a lot of people are concerned about um, uh, uh, place this Alzheimer's problem and what we do to uh, address um, the, the cognitive challenges that go along with aging. So uh, we hope that this is a modest contri- contribution to thinking about things differently, and we surely need to think about things in a more innovative and creative way. And you and I hope that our generation of baby boomers are going to contribute to that kind of new way of thinking creatively as they age. This is a powerful, big idea that is, certainly fits well within what we're talking about in general in this program, and that is generation reinvention. How do we reinvent the future and leave a legacy? Well, you've just answered that in part. So we'll be back for our final segment, and we're going to talk about the future of brain aging. What is the future going to, to mean? Certainly human aging, but let's talk about the brain too. We'll be right back. You're listening to the FMG Radio Network where our motto is have fun, make money, do good. We provide platforms to individuals who have a cause, message, or information that they would like to share with the world. If you'd like to join the FMG family and have your own radio show, please call us at 1-800-470-4982. That's 1-800-470-4982. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us in a very interesting conversation that we're having today with Dr. Peter Whitehouse. And certainly there's a lot of thoughtful ideas. Again, I encourage you to begin your journey further by going to Dr. Whitehouse's website, themythofalzheimers.com, and learn more about this incredible field that is literally changing as we speak. To that point, I was reading in the New York Times this week, and I quote from the New York Times, it says, the problem of Alzheimer's that Dr. Robert Bateman found is disposal. Beta amyloid, he found, normally is disposed of extremely quickly within eight hours. Half the beta amyloid in the brain has been washed away, replaced by new beta amyloid. With Alzheimer's disease, Dr. Bateman discovered beta amyloid is 
made a, uh, at a normal rate, but it hangs around, draining at a rate that is 30% slower than in healthy people the same age. And healthy older people, in turn, clear the substance from their brain more slowly than healthy younger people. That means that it might be possible to attack Alzheimer's, not just by getting rid of beta amyloid, but also by speeding up its disposal. So, Dr. Whitehouse, is there a possible pharmaceutical magic bullet on the horizon? I think you've addressed that, but I'd like you to comment in the context of what was just uh, made available through the New York Times to the general public this week. I'm sure you're way ahead of it in your scholarly work. Well, let me just say that um, I'm a regular reader of the New York Times, unlike Kindle, uh, but Gina Collada, <laughs> the uh, uh, science writer, has been doing a terrible job of covering Alzheimer's, and if you want to hear some of our comments about that, um, just go to our blog attached to that website you mentioned, okay. because it's all full of um, you know breakthroughs and where we're headed. Look, ever since people thought, started thinking about amyloid, if you got something accumulating in the brain, right? Right. Don't you think other people would have thought for some time, well, maybe there's a problem with too much coming in or not going out uh, enough or fast enough? So this idea that it could be uh, having to do with um, the disposal, as you said, is not a new idea. Now, I have to say, Randy Bateman actually trained at our university, and uh, Alan Lerner, who's a friend of mine, was one of his mentors. So I think Randy's a good guy. Um, I don't know him personally. Uh, and this idea of putting a, um, a catheter, a plastic piece of plastic, a tube to measure um, uh, the, the amyloid in spinal fluid, you know, took a while to get developed, as the article uh, talks about. But let me just say that amyloid in the spinal fluid is even further away than amyloid in the brain. And so we really don't know what it means uh, to, to say that there's um, uh, 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 more in the spinal fluid. And besides, it wasn't uh, an absolute difference. There was a percentage difference. I think it was, um, I may be wrong about this, something like around 30%. So this wasn't an absolute difference. This wasn't that one uh, group of people had no amyloid and the other had, you know, a chock full. So it's, again, a gradation. Um, he did a relatively small number of uh, patients, which is always the case. So I would say to you that this is not a new idea, that it is, um, that it is uh, certainly well worthwhile pursuing, but the notion that this is going to lead to um, you know, a therapeutic, a different, a different kind of magic bullet. People have been thinking about magic bullets like this for a while. And um, the you know the the, the the whole article includes a whole bunch of um, different uh, studies. I'm going to be blogging about this article this weekend. Okay, um, good. You know, and and Sam Gandhi, uh, you know, at the end of the article says there are some big questions that will have to be answered. Uh, you know, uh, that that that. Um, but there's this constant need, particularly now with the new national Alzheimer's strategic planning efforts. To say we've had breakthroughs and breakthroughs, and that we've got new understanding, and, and and that you know the march to progress is continuing, you just have to look carefully at uh, how much of that is hype and how much is with his hope. I certainly understand that, and I you know I had that question when I read, knowing your work, knowing your thoughts about this, but I wanted to see what your thoughts were specifically about this article because it was kind of a hallelujah article. The vaccine is coming. <laughs> and uh, we need to well, let, me just, let me just interrupt you to say that Gina Collada had to they printed a, a correction. Her uh, article a few months ago was so exaggerated that the New York Times, not this one, 
although I would find this one a bit exaggerated. The other one, you know, they, they, the newspaper had to publish her correction when she missed, she exaggerated statistics having to do with diagnostic testing, which is another whole field where there's a lot of hype. Well, well, one thing that I, I, I'm sure it's disputable, but it, it seems to be uh, fairly typically communicated that right now uh, in the U.S. there's about 5.3 million uh, people with some form of the ADs, and that is expected to triple by 2050. In other words, in the neighborhood of 16 million. And if that frightening statistic in any way becomes true, uh, meaning that's a lot of healthcare cost and a lot of focus. Um, what uh, what what do you see as the implications of that? What what is going to happen and what's forthcoming to mitigate the symptoms of, of um, this disease to make it more manageable within the larger community? What are your predictions for the future? Let me just say that um, that number is contestable. Um, okay. In fact, it's very controversial. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Alzheimer's Association had a meeting. One person said 3 million. The other said 5 million. I'm exaggerating only slightly. And they said, well, let's go with the bigger number. It's not the number used by the International Association of Alzheimer's Disease International. And I can just tell you without revealing secrets, there was a lot of controversy about that, that, that number. But it doesn't really matter in some sense. There are going to be a lot of uh, older people with memory problems. And listen, I would love to be wrong. I mean, if I wake up tomorrow and I read a serious article, not one of Gina's, about, um, <laughs> uh, about a cure being found, I would love to be wrong. Okay, but I still, as I said before, don't know what a cure would look like, what's left in the brain that's due to aging. So the idea of a a fix is the American way. You know, just put enough money into something and we can find the fix. Well, listen, if you just identified a variety of different forms of severe brain aging by this label Alzheimer's, and you're claiming to fix it as the Alzheimer's Association says we can with enough money, are we next going to say, as some people do, but they're pretty much quacks, that aging is a disease, and if we just put enough money into aging, we're going to live forever? I'm sorry to make that comparison, but you need to think about it that way. Just what are we saying? Alzheimer's is so fearful that people just can't get their minds wrapped around the fact that we may have mislabeled this process. So, yes, I'd love a biological fix. But in the meantime, the secret to quality of life, the secret to living a good life is the people you live with. It's the communities you contribute to. So communities that that promote lifespan, brain health, lifelong learning, and, you know, giving people a sense of purpose in in what they do with their lives throughout their life, that's the answer. And by George, if we take that as the answer and figure out how to make better public schools and better healthcare systems, Alzheimer's can be a leverage point to get us thinking about what we need to do to improve public education and improve health care in this country. Mm. Well, that is uh, – I, I really appreciate what you've brought to our thinking today because, again, there's a very large institutionalized industry out there, including the federal government, which this week – Congress voted unanimously to create a national plan to combat Alzheimer's disease, quote-unquote, with the same intensity on on which they've focused the federal dollars on AIDS and cancer, um, that we need the voice of people like Dr. Peter Whitehouse to add some sensibility and some saneness to this process. So I, uh, I have to say I'm most grateful for you being with us today. And uh, the fantastic work you're doing. 
Dr. Whitehouse. It's an incredible contribution. Well, Brent, I want to thank you for your contributions, not just to promoting our our work, but also the whole notion that um, our generation has a lot of work ahead of it, and, and, and it'll be fun to do so. It's serious, but it'll be fun, and I'll look forward to seeing you in Colorado or wherever uh, we will find ourselves uh, next, Brent. Maybe Tucson, I hear. Hint, hint. So maybe we'll see you hey, there. Two, all right. Tucson it'll be. Very good. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks again for your time today. Again, if you want to continue your reading and learning about the myth of Alzheimer's, then go to Dr. Whitehouse's uh, website and stay up with this on his blogging. It's very dynamic, changing daily. There's a lot we need to learn. Next time, our guest will be David Wolf, who Dr. Whitehouse also happens to know. He's a mentor for both of us. And D David Wolf is a pioneer in the field of aging and business. He's the author of several thought-leading books, including Serving the Ageless Market, Ageless Marketing, a very interesting book that was published by Horton called The Firms of Endearment, which really looks at how companies are changing to address the way we're changing as a market. And I'm going to try to get some information out of him about his forthcoming major book called Brave New World View. So join us again for David Wolf. And I look forward to your questions and comments, which you can send me by emailing brent at bgassociates.com. If you have a question, comment, concern you'd like to raise with Dr. Whitehouse, send that to me and I'll make sure he gets it. Thank you for your time today. I hope you've enjoyed this most fascinating discussion. And thank you especially for being part of Generation Reinvention. You've been listening to Generation Reinvention with your host, Brent Green. Visit Brent at his website at generationreinvention.com. And for archive shows, be sure to visit his show page here on the FMG Radio Network, where our motto is, have fun, make money.